Our goal at Send Me to Sleep is to help the world get a good night's rest. Everyone deserves that. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me this evening and taken the time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, we'll be taking a stroll along the woodland path with naturalist author Winthrop Packard. We'll be immersing ourselves in the south rain and spring dawn of the New England forest. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. South Rain The night was dark and bitter cold, though it was early March. Over in the dismal depths of Pigeon Swamp, where no pigeons have nested for nearly half a century, though it is as wild and lone today as it was when they flocked there by thousands, a deep-toned, lonely cry resounded. It was like the fitful bay of a dog in the distance, only that it was too wild and eerie for that. Then there was silence for a space, and an eldritch screech rang out. It was blood-curdling to a human listener, but it was reassuring to the great horned owl, snuggling down on her two great blotched eggs to keep them secure from the cold for it was the voice of her mate hunting. Sailing silently on bat-like wings, he was beating the open spaces of the wood, hoping to find a partridge at roost, and I fancy the deep hoo, 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 all on the same note, was a grumble that trained dogs and pump guns are making the game birds so scarce. Perhaps that blood-curdling screech was one of triumph over the sudden death of a rabbit, for Bubo Virginiana is tremendously rapacious, and will eat any living thing which he can carry away in his claws. It might, too, have been his method of expressing ecstasy over the nest, 
and the promise of spring, which the horned owl alone has the courage to anticipate with nest-building in these raw and barren days, when winter seemingly still has his grip firmly set on us. Oftentimes, his housekeeping arrangements are completed by late February. No other bird does that in Massachusetts, though farther north the Canada jay also lays eggs about that time, way up near the Arctic Circle, where the thermometer registers zero or below, and the snow is deep on the ground. On what trees he cuts the notches of the passing days, I do not know, but surely the horned owl's almanac is as reliable as the old farmer's, and he knows the nearness of the spring. I dare say the other birds which winter with us know it too, though not being so big and husky, they do not venture to give hostages to the enemy quite so eagerly in this season. The barred owl will build in late March, and soon after April Fool's Day, the woodcock will be stealing north and placing strange, pointed, blotched eggs in some little hollow just above high water in the swamp. The crows are cannier still. You will hardly find eggs in their nests hereabouts before the 15th of April, and you will do well to postpone your hunting till the 25th. Yet they all know, as well as I do, when the spring is near, and I think I have the secret of the message which has come to them. It is not the fact that a south wind has blown for this may happen at any time during the winter, but it is something that reaches them on the wings of this same south wind. This night on which the horned owl of Pigeon Swamp brooded her eggs so carefully was lighted by the moon, but towards midnight a purple blackness grew up all about the still sky and blotted out all things in a velvety smear that sent even Bubo to perch beside his mate. There was then no breath of wind. The faint air from the north that had brought the deep chill had faltered and died, leaving its temperature behind it over all the fields and forests. The air stung, and the ground rang like tempered steel beneath the foot. Yet you had but to listen or breathe deep to know what was coming. The stroke of twelve from the distant steeple brought a resonance of romance along the clear miles, and the air left in your nostrils a quality that never winter air had a right to hold. To one who knows the temper of the open field and the forest by day and night, the promise was unmistakable, though so subtle as to be difficult to define. Whether it was sound or smell or both, I knew then that a south wind was coming, bearing on its balmy breath those spicy, amorous odours of the tropics that come to our frozen land only when spring is on its way. The goddess scatters perfumes from her garments as she comes, and the south wind catches them and bears them to us in advance of her footsteps. 
you may sniff these same odours of March far offshore along the West Indies. Spicy, intoxicating scents, born from the heart of tropic wildflowers and floating off to sea on every breeze. With them floats that wonderful grape bloom tint that touches the surface of all the waters to northward of these islands with its velvety softness, the currents carrying it ever northward and eastward, sometimes almost to the shores of the British Isles. You may see it all about you in mid-ocean as your vessel steams from New York to Liverpool or Southampton or Haver or the Hook of Holland. Some essence of all this gets into the air on the southerly gales that are born in the windward isles and whirl up along our coasts to die finally in Newfoundland or Labrador or Greenland itself. I believe the horned owl knows it as well as I do and begins his nest building at the first sniff. At daybreak, the wind had begun to blow. All the keen chill was softened out of the air, and blobs of rain blurred the southern window panes. The temperature had risen already above freezing, and was still on the upward path. There was in all the atmosphere that rich, cool freshness that comes with rain clouds blown far overseas. It is the same quality that we get in an east rain, but it had in it also that suggestion of spiciness and that soft purple haze which drifts away from the tropic islands that border the Caribbean. Stopping a moment in my study before going out into this, I found another creature that had felt the faint call of spring and answered it, I fear, too soon. This was a great Samia Sesropia moth. The night before, he had been safely tucked away in his cocoon over my mantle, where I had hung it last December. In the night, he answered the call, and now was perched outside his cell, gently expanding his wings with pulsing motions that seemed tremulous with eagerness or delight. I noted the soft delicacy of the colouring in his rich, fur-surfaced body and wings, shades which are red and grey and brown and ashes of roses and a score of others so dainty and delicate that we have no words to describe or define them. A wonderful creature this to appear in a man's house, sit poised on his mantle, and blink serenely at him, as if the man himself were the intruder, and the room the usual habitat of creatures out of fairyland. I studied him carefully, thinking, indeed, that he might vanish at any moment, and then I went out into the woods in the soft south rain, only to find that his colours that I thought so marvellous in the shadow of the four walls of my room were reproduced in rich profusion all about me. His velvety white markings, 
lined and touched off with brown so deep in places as to be either purple with density or black were those of the birch trunks all about me, and there were the rufous tints that shaded down into pearl pinks and lavender all through the groups of distant birch twigs. His grey fur was the softest and richest of the fur of the grey squirrels, and this grey again shaded into red in spots that could be matched only by the fur of the red squirrel. There were soft tans on him of varying shades, from rich to delicate pale, and all the last year's leaves and grasses had them. Nor was there a colour about him which was not matched and repeated a thousandfold in bark and twigs and lichens and shadows all through the wood. I had but to stand by with the great moth in my mind's eye to see the whole woodland bursting from its cocoon and spreading its wings for flight. As a matter of fact, that is what it is going to do later, but the time is not yet. Meanwhile, the south rain was washing its colours clear and laying bare their bright beauty. In it you saw without question the promise of new growth and new life. Trees and shrubs stood like school children with shining morning faces, newly washed for the coming season. All trace of dinginess was gone. The yellow freckles on the brown cheeks of the wild cherry gleamed from far. The pale, olive-green tint of the willow's complexion was transparent in its new-found brilliancy. Looking down on the ruddy glow of the healthy maple twigs, it seemed as if they should have yellow hair and sunny blue eyes, so rich is the colouring of these Saxons of the wood, and so fresh it shone under the ministering rain. Even the dower scrub oaks, surely Ethiopians, were not so black as they have been painted all winter, but lost their ebon tint in a hue of rich, dark green that was a pleasing foil to the Cesropia moth, beauty of the rest of the woods. The one colour lacking was blue, the sky's leaden grey was but a foil for the rich woodland tints, and I wandered on seeking its hue elsewhere. Over on the hillside are the hypatias. Their colour, when open, is hardly blue, being more often purple or even lavender. Yet they would do, lacking a more pronounced shade. But I could not find a hypatia in bloom as yet. Their tri-lobed leaves are still green and show but little the wear and tear of the winter's frosts and thaws. In the centre of each group is the pointed bud that encloses the furry blossoms, itself as softly clad in protecting fur as the body of the moth visitor. 
but no hint of colour peeped from it as yet. You need to look carefully in very early spring to be sure of this too, for the hypatia is the shyest of sweet young things, and when she first blooms, it is with such modesty that you have to chuck the flower heads under the chin to get a glimpse even of their eyes. Later on, the coaxing sun reassures them, and they stare placidly and innocently up to it, like wandering children. Over on the sandy southern slope, there might be violets too. Later in the year, the whole field will be blue with them, and all about are their rosettes and sagittate leaves, which the cold has had to hold sternly in check to keep them from growing the winter through. Indeed, I do not believe it has fully succeeded. It has been a mild season, and I think the violets have taken the opportunity, during warm spells of several days' duration, to surreptitiously put forth another leaf or so in the very centre of that rosette. If so, they might well have followed this courage with the further audacity of buds, and buds, indeed, they had, but not one of them was open far enough to show even a faint hint of the blue that I was seeking. It was hardly to be expected of the violets. They are so sturdy and full of simple, homely, common sense that it is rare that you find them doing things out of the usual routine. Warm skies and south winds may tease them long before they will respond by blooming earlier than their wanted date. They know the ways of the world well and realise how unwise it is for proper young people to overstep the bounds of strict conventionality. On the other hand, the Hypatias, with all their innocence, perhaps because of it, care little for the conventions. Indeed, I doubt if they know there are such things, or if they have heard of them would recognise them. It is likely that in some sunny, sheltered nook, some rash youngsters, all clad in furs of pearl grey, is in bloom now, though so shy and so hidden that I was unable to find a hint of colour. I have known them to half open those lavender blue eyes under the protecting crust of winter snow. Towards nightfall, the rain ceased and the clouds simply faded out of the pale sky, letting the sun shine through with gentle warmth. Whither the mists went, it was hard to tell, but they were gone, and a soft spring sun began wiping the tears from all things. Under its caress, it seemed as if you could see the buds swell a little, and I am quite sure, though it was not there to see, that at this moment the willow catskins down by the brook slipped forth from their protecting brown sheaths and boldly proclaimed the spring. They might have done so, and I would not have seen had I been there, for just then I had a message. 
Cheerily we, cheerily we, came a faint voice out of the sky. An echo from distant angel choirs practicing carols for Easter could not have seemed more musical or brought more delight to me down at the bottom of the soft blue haze that was taken golden radiance from the setting sun. But through it I looked to the pale blue of the sky and saw two motes dancing down the sunshine, motes that caroled and grew to the glints of heavenly blue that fluttered down on an ancient apple tree like a bit of benediction. Just a pair of bluebirds, of course, and I don't know now whether they are the first of the migrants to reach my part of the pasture, or whether they are the two that have wintered here, and that I have seen them before on bright days. Wherever they came from, they supplied the one bit of blue that I had sought, and their presence was like an embodiment of joy. Then the gentle prattling sweetness of their carol. What a range there was between that and the wild voice of the great horned owl, heard not twenty-four hours before. It was all the vast range between arctic winter night and soft summer sunshine. The owl had voiced the savage grumble of the winter. The bluebird caroled the gentle promise of the spring. The promise may be long in finding its fulfilment, of course. The snow may lie deep, and the frost nip the willow catkin. Though little they'll care for that, and the bluebirds may be driven more than once to the deep shelter of the cedar swamp. But that does not take away the promise that came on the wings of the south wind. The promise that set the great horned owl to laying her eggs in that abandoned crow's nest, and that made the bluebirds seek the ancient apple tree as their very first perch. March is no spring month, in spite of the old farmer's almanac. It is just a blank page between the winter and the spring. But if you scan it closely, you will find on it written the promise we all seek, the hope that lured my great Samia Sesropia out of his snug cocoon. Spring Dawn I have been night clerking a bit lately. Social settlement work, you know, at the Pasture Pines Hotel paying a special attention to the crow lodgers, and in so doing, have come to the conclusion that in the last score or so years, the crows in my town have changed their habits. It used to be their custom to roost in flocks, winters, over on the wheeler's place in the big pines, you could find a rookery of several hundred of a winter evening dropping in from all directions and making a perfect uproar of crow talk, or rather, crow yells, till darkness sent them all to sleep, sitting together in long rows on the upper limb, I suppose for mutual warmth. Here, 
each with head poked deep under his wing. They would remain till dawn, when with more uproar they would all whirl off together to some common breakfasting place. Later in the day, they would become separated, only to drop in at night to the usual roost. It was not a very safe proceeding, for the farm boys, eager to use the new gun, used to go down before sunset and hide beneath the pines, letting go both barrels with great slaughter after the crows had become settled. Perhaps this had something to do with the breaking up of the custom, for now, though many crows roost on the wheeler's place, they do so singly, each in his own room, so to speak. The same is true of the crow guests at the Pasture Pine Hotel. I had the pleasure of waking them early there this morning, incidentally and vicariously, waking all Crow Town. Last night, just as the last tint of amber was fading from the sunset sky, letting a yellow-green evening star come through, almost like a first daffodil, a crow slipped batwise across the amber and dropped into a certain pine to roost. I noted the tree, and this morning, before hardly a glimmer of dawn had come, slipped along beneath the dark boughs, planning to get just beneath his tree and see him first. I had planned without the obstructions in the path and the uncertain light. I approached unheard on the needle-carpeted avenue beneath the big trees, but when I started across the field, still twenty rods away from my bird, I kicked a dry, broken branch. What? What was that? It was an unmistakable crow inquiry, fairly shouted from the tree I had marked as the roosting place. There wasn't the space of a breath between the snap of that branch and the answer of the bird. Surely a night clerk in Crow Town has an easy task. There need be no prolonged hammering on the door of the guest who would be called early. One tap is sufficient. I had hoped to stand beneath that tree and sight my crow in the grey of dawn, see him yawn with that prodigious black beak after he had withdrawn it from under his wing, then stretch one wing and one leg, as birds do, look the world over, catch sight of me and go off at a great pace, shouting a hasty warning to the world in general. But he did not see me. That breaking branch had opened his eyes and ears with one snap. He heard the crisp of my footfall on the frozen grass of the field, and immediately there was a great flapping in the marked pine tree, and he was off over the tops of its neighbours to a safe place at eighth of a mile away. He said three things, and so plain were they, that any listener could have understood them. Languages vary, but emotions and the inflections they cause are the same in all creatures. The veriest Tyro in Woodlaw could have understood that crow. His first ejaculation was plainly surprise and query blended. In his sleep, he had heard a noise, 
he thought it, very likely, a fellow calling to him to get up and start the day's work. Then when the answer was a man's footfall, he flew to safety, sounding the short, nervous yelp which is always the danger signal. Then, when he had again alighted in safety, he realised that it was morning again, and he was awake, and it was time that the gang got together. Hi, 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 it said. It was neither musical nor polite, but it was intended to wake every crow within a half a mile in a spirit of righteous good fellowship. There was no further need of my services. Every crow within a half mile answered that call. Then I could hear those farther on rousing and taking up the cry. And so it went on, no doubt indefinitely. I have a feeling I waked every crow in eastern Massachusetts a full half hour before his accustomed time, simply by kicking that dead limb. However, I learned one thing, and hereby report it to the Lodging House Commission. That is, that the crows hereabouts have now given up the dormitory idea and occupy individual rooms after nightfall. They were scattered all through the pasture and woodland, but no two were within twenty rods of one another. Their minds have not yet turned to nest building and mating, though the time is near, for they still flock in hilarious good fellowship at sunrise, and you may hear them swooping and hurrahing about in crowds all day long. They may be beginning to take notice. I suspect some of the hilarity is over that. But they have not come to the pairing off stage. When they reach that, the flocks will disappear, and you would hardly think there was a crow left in the whole wood. You might, by stepping softly, surprise a pair of them inspecting a likely pine in the pasture, planning for the nest. You might, by listening in the secluded places, hear the curious, low-toned, prolonged croak, which is a love song. I have heard this described as musical, but it is not. It is as if a barn door hinge should try to sing, Oh, promise me. But there will be no more congregations. Certainly there was not much in the aspect of the night which was just slipping away when I waked my crow that would seem to justify plans of nest building. The thermometer marked twenty in my sheltered front porch when I stepped out. It must have been some degrees below that in the open. The ground was flint with the frost in it. The old thick ice was gone from the pond, indeed, broken up by the disintegrating insinuation of the sun and the vigorous lashing of northwest gales, but in its place was a skim of new ice formed that night. Standing still, you felt the lance of the north wind still. It was winter. Yet, you had but to breathe deep to get the soft assurance of the near presence of spring. And if you walked briskly, for a moment, 
the north wind's lances fell clattering to icy ground, and you moved in a new atmosphere of warmth and geniality. Thus point to point are the picket lines of the contending forces. In the west, the pale, cold moon, now a few days past the full, was sinking in a blue-black sky that might have been that of the keenest night in December. In the east, out of a low bank of dark clouds that marked the dun spring mists rising from the sea twenty miles away, flashed iris tints of dawn upwards into a clear, pale sky that bore damplings of softest apple green. On the one hand were night and winter, and on the other, dawn and spring. And down the pine-sheltered path, I walked between the two, to a point where I stopped in delight. The pine path ended, and the willows let the spring dawn filter through their delicate sprays. Just here, I caught a hum of the winter rolling over the dam and the prattle of the brook below and right through it all, clear, mellow, and elated, came the voice of a song sparrow. Colink, colink, chee chee chee, spee speedle, sweet sweet, he sang, and it fitted so well with the rollicking tinkle of the brook, that I knew he was down among the alders where he could smell the rich spring odour of the purling water. The two sounds not only complemented one another, as do two parts in music, but they were of the same quality, though so distinctly different. It was as if tenor and alto were being sung. I had gone forth expecting bluebirds, I had half hoped for a robin when it came time for matins, for robins have always been about in winter, and here a song sparrow, no doubt the first spray from the northward surging wave of migratory birds, was the first to break the winter stillness. He had hardly piped his first round, though, before the voices of bluebirds murmured in the air above and two lighted on the willows, caroling in that subdued manner which is the epitome of gentleness. I think these two were migrants, for later in the morning I heard others. Then, in a half minute, there was a shrilling of wings that beat the air rapidly, and six ducks swung over my head in the rosy dusk. Most ducks make a swishing sound with the wings when in rapid flight, but this was so marked in sibilation that I am quite sure it was a flock of golden eyes, more commonly called whistlers, because they so excel in wing music. They swung a wide circle over my head and then dropped back into the pond, where an opening in the young ice gave them opportunity. Curiosity probably brought them up. They wanted to see what that was prowling on the pond shore in the uncertain light, a prompting that might have cost them dear had I carried a gun.
before they came within easy range. Then, having seen, they went back to their fishing. Their presence added a touch of wildness to the scene that was not without its charm, for you can hardly call the bluebird or the song sparrow wild birds. They are almost as domestic as the garden shrubbery. For the moment, the bird song and the whistling of the duck's wings through the rosy morning light made me forget the grip of the winter cold that was in all the air. Yet, when I had crossed the dam and begun to clamber along the other shore of the pond, the winter reasserted itself. Here was no promise of changing season. The thick ice, in its disintegration, had been pushed far ashore by the westerly gale, and here it was frozen in pressure ridges, which were not so far different from those one may see on the Arctic shores. To them was cemented the young ice of the night, and I could walk along shore in places on its surface, its structure as elastic as that of early December. Here, too, was piled high the debris not only of that great battle in which the spring forces had ripped the thick ice from the water, but of the daily skirmishes in which winter and north wind have set a half inch of ice all along the surface, and spring sunshine had broken it away from its moorings, obliging the very north wind that made it to pile it in long wind throws high on shore. To clamber along these pressure ridges and hear the crunching cakes resound under my tread in hollow, frosty tones. To feel the bite of the north wind which drifted across the new ice was to step out of the spring promise which the birds had given me, back into the Arctic. I was almost ready to look for seal and wonder if I wouldn't soon hear the wild wolf howl of Inuit dogs and round a point onto one of their villages. The song sparrow was far out of hearing, and here we were in midwinter again. Only in the east was their promise. Through the dark tracery of pond-bordered trees, I could see the sky, all soft, unearthly green, like an impressionist lawn, and all through this the sun, now close below the horizon, had forced into bloom red tulips and blue and yellow crocuses of spring dawn. From the ice ridges it was all as unreal as if I were hung in a frozen gallery, and I were an unwilling tourist, shivering as I observed it. Again, I had to go but a short distance to find a new country. Here, the warmer waters of a little brook came babbling down the slope and had pushed away all the ice ridges and warmed its own path far out into the new ice. Along its edge, the older catkins hung in grouped tassels of Phoenician red, and here and there, a group had so thrilled to warmth of the running water, that even in the face of cold wind, they had begun to relax a bit and show cracks in the varnished surface that had kept the Starmans secure all winter. 
It will not be long now before these favoured ones will begin to shake the yellow pollen from their curls. Already they are giving the hint of it. A little way upstream, however, was a far more potent reminder of the coming season. I caught a whiff of its great fragrance and smiled before I saw it. I wonder why we always smile at the most beautiful spring flower, for it was a spring blossom, the very first of the season, which was growing in the soft green of the brookside grass, its yellow head all swathed in a maroon and green, stripped and flecked, pointed hood, lifted bravely above the protecting herbage into the nipping air. The flowering spadix I could not see, only the handsome protecting spathe which was wound about the tender blossom to protect them from the cold. When the sun is high in the sky, this spathe will loosen a bit and let visiting insects enter for the fertilization of the blossom. But in that cold air of early morning, it was wrapped tight. I have seen orchids tenderly nurtured in conservatories that had not half the honest beauty of this flower. Neither to me is the odour of the derided skunk cabbage more unpleasant than that of many a coddled and admired garden bloom. A dahlia, for instance. Yet I smiled in derision on catching the first whiff of it, and so do we all. If the Simplicarpus cared, it would be too bad, but it does not. Unconscious of its caddish critics, it blooms serenely on in the swamps and takes the tiny insects into its confidence and its hood, and adds a bit of rich colour to the place when no other blossom dares. And even as I looked at it, the sun slipped out of the low band of the dark horizon mists and sent a golden good morning like a benediction right down upon the head of the humble, courageous, sturdy beauty of the brookside. After that approval, why should any blossom care? 